1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us.
0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDIC.
1: It, it really does range from everything as far as like I've heard cancer and autism and anxiety, depression, like claims to treat just about everything under the sun, which is like if you're looking for a Cairo and you truly want to see one, like that's usually the first red flag. If they're advocating for treating conditions outside of the umbrella that is musculoskeletal, aches and pains and pain stuff, that should be the first red flag. Like you shouldn't be seeing that.
0: Welcome to Wellness, Fact versus Fiction. I'm Dr. Danielle Bellardo, and I'm a cardiologist who loves evidence-based medicine and nutrition science. But as a millennial, I've watched endless wellness fads take over social media. It's my mission to get to the bottom of things by bringing on the top expert physicians and scientists to help us determine what is fact versus fiction when it comes to your health. It's time to leave the pseudoscience behind and become empowered when it comes to our wellness. Hey everyone. Welcome back. This week's guest is an exciting one and highly requested. So today we have Aaron Kubal. He's a board certified chiropractor with special interests in rehabilitation and chronic pain. As soon as Aaron got to chiropractic school, he realized the profession was filled with tons of dangerous pseudoscience, lacking any rigorous evidence for various different methods and practices. And so we made a total Career change. After graduating from school, he started studying evidence-based, guideline-based medicine for musculoskeletal health, rehabilitation, and chronic pain. And he started using his social media platform to debunk a lot of misinformation from the field of chiropractic medicine. He made it his mission to share the truth about the predatory nature of chiropractors and started a telehealth rehabilitation clinic rooted in education, exercise, and evidence. So today's episode covers. The biggest myths in musculoskeletal health, including spine realignment, SI joints, spinal manipulation and newborns, and whether chiropractors can actually treat other medical issues, what actually happens when your back cracks and why it may feel good, simple red flags to watch out for when you're choosing a practitioner for musculoskeletal pain, the future of that profession and how the education system needs to change guidelines and evidence-based medicine for musculoskeletal pain and the power of exercise and so much more. You guys are going to love this episode. So let's dig in. Hi everyone. Today we have the amazing Aaron Kubal here who is Probably the most hated chiropractor in (laughs) America by other chiropractors, which really speaks to me because I have at times been one of the most hated vegans by other vegans because of my um, debunking of some nutrition science misinformation. So Aaron is kind of in the same boat. He spends a lot of time on social media debunking musculoskeletal misinformation all over the Spectrum, And so today we're going to discuss this together. Thanks, Aaron, for being here.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I don't know, most hated. I don't know if I can confirm or deny. I, there's definitely some strong opinions about me out there. But yeah, mm-hmm. I think it'll be fun to kind of dive into a lot of this stuff today.
0: Yeah, you know, I, what I say is that if you're criticizing pseudoscience, you're going to make some enemies and definitely. there's nothing you can do about that. Definitely. Yeah. Well, okay. Can you just give everyone a background about you? Because you are a trained chiropractor and kind of just tell everyone where you got to where you are and a little bit of the story.
1: Sure. Yeah. So I think probably for this particular audience, the best place to start is how I even got into Cairo school. Because I think a lot of what confuses people is when they see my platform, they think I disagree with a lot of the things that our field does. So they'll ask right away, like, why are you even in the field? So I, I was an athlete all through growing up, various aches and pains come and go with sports. So we had a family friend who was a chiro. And my mom would take me to see to see these guys. And um, and I had a great experience with that. And it, there was really, truly nothing weird about it. And when I look back on it retrospectively, just based on how I practice currently as a chiropractor, there's really not a lot of stuff that this guy did with me back when I was growing up that I would disagree with currently today. I mean, he really did a great job. and And what he showed me, and the way he treated me, that was my impression of what chiropractic was. That's what I just you know, naively assumed that all chiropractors did. Um, And I didn't really know a whole lot else about it. But I knew in high school that I wanted to do what he did for people, you know, once I was out of college and, and looking into careers and stuff. So I knew early on that I wanted to do that job. And that was my plan. And then, you know, finally, several years later, the time came to go to chiro school, and just got completely shocked to find out that he was definitely not Representative of the whole of chiropractic. And there was a lot more to it that I didn't know about, which, you know, part of that's on me just being a dummy and not looking a little further into things before investing my life into it. But that's kind of how I got into school was I just had a great experience growing up. And then once I was in school, slowly started realizing that there was a lot more to this. And there was definitely, you know, a lot of controversy around a lot of the things that some chiropractors do. And controversy just within the profession as a whole and there was there was a lot more beneath the surface that I wasn't aware of but anyway um, to kind of speed that up went through Cairo school very interesting process for me as somebody who didn't agree with a lot of what was being taught so definitely a lot of tension pretty much for four straight years and then I graduated and I took a pretty unconventional route to clinical practice after graduation that being I started my own telehealth clinic so online only all virtual. Which obviously some listeners probably sounds a little strange considering you imagine chiropractors cracking backs all the time. I do not do that. I don't see patients in person. Everything is over video call, and I'm sure that just adds to a lot of the confusion. So yeah, it's definitely been a very non-conventional journey for me through chiropractic up to this point. But I'm a year in to practice, and I'm loving it so far.
0: That's amazing. And one of the things that drew me to your account is actually the massive amount of guidelines that you share and Mm evidence-based information. And everyone who's listening knows that I am a huge fan of guidelines and because I think it's the easy way to kind of see in different specialties what the consensus of scientific recommendations are based on evidence that is, you know, graded and critically appraised. Mm -hmm. And when I saw that you were doing that in the musculoskeletal space and that you were a chiropractor, I thought it was fascinating because- chiropractors have been, and not to say that MDs haven't been, because they certainly have been too, but chiropractors have been some of the biggest proponents of misinformation during the pandemic. Yeah, And so it was really refreshing to see a page based on musculoskeletal information that was really citing guidelines, systematic reviews, meta-analysis, um, and it was amazing. So I appreciate your work a lot. So starting with some of the questions I have for you, the basics, you know, one of the... Basic things that I think is going to probably shock a lot of people listening right now. That I think that we all think going to the chiropractor does, but I think a lot of people are under the impression that when you go to the chiropractor, they say they're adjusting your spine. They're actually mm-hmm. they're actually cracking your spine back into place, and that's not actually the case. So, can you kind of describe what's actually happening?
1: Yeah, um, and, and I'm glad that you started with that question because I think that myth. Like if we were to weigh all of the myths in musculoskeletal healthcare, and honestly, for this one, just healthcare in general, I think that myth might be one of the, if not the most harmful ones out there, just as far as how it has shaped our society's perception of the spine itself. Because the spine really is this incredibly robust, stable, incredibly strong structure that can handle so much force. But because of all this misinformation around it, stemming from this this one, the the idea that it can be realigned with our hands, it has caused us to view it like it's like made out of paper or something, which is just not at all the case. And and because if you think about it, like okay, the you see a Cairo crack somebody's back. If you think that them just pushing on someone's back and making the cracking sound means that they are literally moving the bone from position A to position B to line things up, you gotta imagine that that structure is pretty unstable. And pretty weak and flimsy if all it takes is a little push of the hands and a crack of the back to to line things up. So so basically to to kind of nip it in the bud, we don't have the ability to physically change the shape of your spine, reshape anything, line things up. And if you just think about it, you know, evidence aside, purely from a logic standpoint, if if the spine was really that flimsy, if you're watching the NFL playoffs right now, those players out there would be a pile of bones on the field. I mean, they would fall apart in an instant and we, scoliosis would no longer be a thing. We wouldn't be still doing surgeries for scoliosis and you wouldn't see scoliosis anymore if we truly could simply align and change the shape of your spine with our, with our bare hands just by cracking you. So when you just start thinking about a few of those things, it already starts to seem like maybe a little bit of a contentious idea. Um, and then we have a whole bunch of evidence kind of debunking that it really changes shape in any way there's a lot of different ways that you can kind of go about and look at that but i do understand the confusion because there's a lot of chiropractors who will use like pre and post adjustment x-rays and a lot yes. of chiropractors yes. yeah that's that's a huge one
0: i will say so my yes. first experience with a chiropractor before this is like way before i was in med school i was training for a marathon i was having like some back tightness back pain whatever i go to a chiropractor i didn't know you know much about it. I think I got mm-hmm. to a chiropractor when I was in high school too with sports. You know, he did the pre and post yeah. adjustment. Mm-hmm. I remember him showing me this x-ray of my spine being like, see, I gotta realign this. I've got to move this. I've got And now looking back, thinking, oh my gosh, I was so duped.
1: <laughs> it's a big one. And and I, I don't blame patients and I don't blame the public either for falling for it because it's an x-ray. It seems professional. Your perception of of a doctor or a medical professional is that they should x-ray you because they need to find the problem. And then they show you the problem. And then they tell you how they're going to fix it. And it all seems very logical, right? So I don't blame normal people for for falling for that sort of thing. But when we start to dive into what research shows us and what guidelines show us and how a lot of this stuff actually works, you can shred that model of care from like a 1000 different angles. And I've done it so many times in so many videos, because like, I mean, some of the messages that I get from people who fall into that sort of predatory practice of taking the x-ray, showing you how you're misaligned, saying we're going to correct it over this time period and re-x-ray you to show progress. The messages I get from people who have fallen into that trap are just heartbreaking because it's people who are signing up for thousands and thousands of dollars worth of care through a contract that they have to pay for up front.
0: And time, by the way, because I remember my, when my, the chiropractor I saw, I was in college and I remember like chiropractor I saw, is like, he did the x-ray and he was like, you're going to need to come three times a yep. week yep. for this many months. And then we'll check the x-ray afterwards. And I was like, all right, you know, and just got better with time anyway. Well,
1: and that's how we need to change kind of the way, because like, we always talk about like harmful practices and everybody assumes that we mean physical harm, but we need to redefine Exactly all the ways that you can be harmed by misinformation and non-guideline based care, that being the loss of time, the loss of finance, the delaying of actual yeah. necessary care, all those things. Totally. Like there's more harm than just physical. So that is that is a massive problem. I, I
0: want to break in and ask you this: is that did they actually teach you? in chiropractor school that you are actually moving the bones like where like (laughs) is this like what are they actually teaching in school because that is obviously so false and and then that leads down the the road of like me and i'm gonna ask you something that so many people have asked about is that why do chiropractors say that they can adjust children why does a newborn baby Mm -hmm. what is it based on like what are they teaching in the actual curriculum and how is this legal to teach something that's so incorrect.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So it's, it's really mixed and it's really complicated because a lot of this outdated information is still on our licensure exams. So to an extent, the schools have to teach some of it because you have to pass the license exams to get the license and the curriculum has to prepare you to pass those exams. Like that's what the curriculum is meant to do as far as like getting you your degree and your license and everything. So the problem stems from, from that to begin with, like they, they have to teach it because you have to pass that. And, and some, some schools do a better job than others for sure. And there's a, that's this part of the problem too, is there's a wide spectrum of, of chiropractic schools that some of them are considered to be more evidence based others are not, but, I, like, why do students come out teaching that? So like in my own experience with my chiropractic school, I went to Northwestern Health Sciences, which is here in Minneapolis, about 15 minutes away from from where I am. And like, we, we were told, no, you're not moving bones, right? Which was good. But then students were also getting really mixed messages because you'd be told that. But then when we would go into our hands-on labs where you would actually get trained in spinal manipulation or backcracking, we would be told, okay, first you have to find the misalignment. So we would literally touch the spine and feel where we perceive there to be some kind of asymmetry, which obviously implies that you're going to fix that asymmetry, which obviously implies that you're putting the bone back into place. So even though they told us we're not, wow, some of the narrative is implied that we are. And then you call, you call the TA over to say, okay, this is the asymmetry. And then they touch it and they say, yep, you found it and they confirm it for you. And then you tell them what you're going to do to correct the asymmetry. So you literally describe the vector or the the direction you're going to push on that asymmetry that you think you found. And they tell you if that's the correct technique to use to put it where you want to put it. And then you'll do it and they'll watch you. And then you'll recheck and say if you perceive that you might have Um, that it moves better in the direction you want it to or that it's aligned better or that it's more springy in the way that you want it to be. And then they will check it and confirm that for you. So even though they try to get out in front of it and say that we're not aligning bones, there's still a lot of really conflicting narrative around the way that we were trained that still kind of implies to you that like maybe you are.
0: When I think of my medical training, like I remember being on my surgery rotation in an ortho spine case and to move the spine bones, literally, they have like a jackhammer that they Mm -hmm. bring in to like break the actual bone if they need to, and to create space for, you know, a disc that's, you know, like extruded or whatever. And it's just, if the idea that people think that have been led to believe by this field that- they're actually getting their spine realigned is, is mind-blowing to me. Because it, like you said before, if that were the case, I mean, our spinal cords would just be like, I mean, all of us would be paralyzed if you could just, with every move, you could just realign your spine, you know? Well, and,
1: and think about this too. Like I, cause we had, this is what baffles me too, is we had in our just general anatomy classes, we had a year and a half of hands-on dissecting. So like we were literally scalpel in hand doing all the dissecting on cadavers. So we saw that. And like the one that drives me the most nuts, ironically, this is a problem in physical therapy too. Like they're not saying spines are misaligned, but this is a different myth that's similar that they also have a huge issue with, which is with the SI joint that gets blamed a lot for back pain. And people will say that it's out of place or up slipped or whatever. If you've ever actually dissected a cadaver and like, gotten to see an SI joint and touch it and try to move it and try to like change it in any way. It's almost like it's like already anatomically fused. This thing does not move. Like, if you're on a motorcycle and you get hit by a bus, the only thing that will probably still be intact on you is the SI joint. Like, it is an incredibly stiff, stable, almost fused structure. And yet, in both Cairo and PT, you still have this massive, massive myth going around that like, you can change how it moves or that it can be misaligned or upslipped or too mobile or, or whatever. So it's, it's just crazy. Cause like we had those labs. I don't understand how you can see that and then turn around and say something so contradictory.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's unbelievable. So now that you've clarified that when a chiropractor is cracking someone's back or cracking someone's neck, which makes me shudder. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> When that's happening, we are not realigning the bones. We are not putting bones back into place. So can you explain to everyone what is actually happening? And explain to everyone what's actually happening. And for the people listening who are saying, but it does make me feel better. Why is that? Can you explain that as well?
1: Yeah, so I'll start with what's actually happening. Um, What's actually happening is it's it's really not much different, if if any different at all, than cracking your knuckle. That that always begs the question. Everybody always asks, oh, is cracking your knuckles bad for you? No, it's not. It's not going to cause arthritis or really any sort of problem. Same applies for cracking your back, cracking your neck, all of these things. It really is just like cracking a knuckle. Nothing's getting realigned. You have tiny little pockets of gas that fill in the joint spaces. And when you push on those joint spaces and move them, the little gas bubbles collapse among themselves and they make a popping sound. And then, you know, after just a few moments pass, they'll kind of resorb and you'll have the gas bubbles again. They can crack again, right? That's why like, if you sit really, really still for a really long period of time, it lets those gas bubbles settle. And then when you finally move or like you push on your back after sitting very still for a long period of time, that's when you might get that really loud cavitation because those gas bubbles kind of settle out. And it's the same reason why after you've pushed on your own back and get that really loud cavitation, you usually can't do it again right away because you just collapse some of those teeny tiny little bubbles. And now they will refill before you can crack them again. And that's truly the beginning and end of like what's actually occurring that we feel fairly confident in as far as like what's happening physically to the spine. It's just the little gas bubbles that come when you just move joints and there's really nothing special about it. And then the question, why do people feel better, right? First, we do have some pretty mixed evidence that um, spinal manipulation or back and neck cracking can give small short-term pain relief for some people sometimes. And I word it that exact way on purpose because it's certainly not a magic bullet. It's certainly not something that's just going to pluck pain right out of your body. It's not something that's going to help every single person. And part of the reason that it's not going to help every single person is that a lot of the effect and the outcome that happens with something like spinal manipulation and a lot of other treatments that chiropractors and physical therapists use is driven by contextual effects, meaning like how much value do you as the patient place on the treatment? How bought in are you to the explanations? How much are you expecting it to work? Um, You know, the fact that you're in a healthcare setting with a trained professional who you trust, like those sort of context pieces seem to drive positive outcomes, maybe a bit more than the actual treatment itself. I think an easy example would be like, if you have somebody who grew up in a family of chiropractors who believes in it more than they believe in like any religion, and you compare that person to somebody who's never even heard of a chiropractor, and they both have back pain, who do you think will perceive a greater benefit from back cracking from a chiropractor between those two people? Probably the one who has had that really positive influence from chiropractic their entire life versus the totally unbiased person. Those seem to drive some of the positive effects. And then the most important thing is natural history. So just the natural progression, that's kind of the big thing with musculoskeletal aches and pains. A lot of them have a really positive self-resolving timeline. They seem to just get better on their own, regardless of what we do for a lot of the conditions we treat. So if you think about it, right, acute back pain, right? So let's say you have a new episode of back pain, you haven't had it before, it's a new thing just kind of showed up. You woke up with it one morning, your back hurts, right? Usually those last about six weeks. And within that time frame, somewhere along the way, they take care of themselves and just go away, right? So imagine it's been two weeks. And now you're like, okay, I thought this would go away, but it hasn't. So I go see a chiropractor, okay, I'm two weeks in. He says, let's start treating, starts cracking your back, whatever. And you do that for a week. And another week passes. So now you're three weeks in, you go one more week, First of all, maybe it's feeling good for you because it can give a little short-term relief and maybe take the edge off, but also now four weeks have passed and it's very possible that the back pain will just go away on its own regardless of what you're doing by the end of those four weeks or after two more weeks of care or whatever and it might very well have absolutely nothing to do with the treatment you received and everything to do with, well, now six weeks have passed and it was just gonna get better no matter what you did. So that's another huge, huge part Um, that we really have to take into consideration when we're looking at how effective or ineffective treatments are. I know that was a lot, but.
0: That's a great point. The natural history is an excellent point because it's one of those things where if you had done nothing, it could have gotten better anyway. So actually, that's one thing I wanted to ask you um, regarding trials. I'm not familiar with this evidence, so I'm so excited to talk to you about it because you are like A textbook of all the most recent trials and guidelines. So what have they compared like spine manipulation to and in those trials or whether it's meta analysis or, you know, I don't know how many have been done. What has it been compared to and how is the pain comparison compared to whatever the comparator is?
1: Sure. So (laughs) they're pretty funny when you look at them and I've shared a lot of them in a lot of my videos. So if people are curious, they can go watch some of my stuff, but the most interesting one that I share a lot with physical therapy students and chiropractic students that I think, I literally think we should be told this on the first day of school, because I think it is just unbelievably important for the clinician to fully understand. There, there's a trial from 2010, and I'm blanking on the guy's name. I think it's Artus, A-R-T-U-S is the last name, but basically he compared pretty much every popular back pain treatment within chiropractic and physical therapy. And just compared them to placebo and to um, no treatment at all and try to kind of take that into consideration within this idea of natural history and regression to the mean and how these conditions seem to resolve themselves, especially acute back pain. And that's what the trial was done on in every single treatment. I mean, everything was in there, whether it's acupuncture, dry needling, hands-on stuff, trigger point, exercise, whatever. No matter what they did, everything seemed to follow the same pattern of improvement, regardless of the treatment. So it's been compared to other similar treatments. It's been compared to usual care. It's been compared to combinations of treatments. It's been compared to an ultrasound machine just turned off as a sham and not outperformed it. I think that is pretty telling both for acute and chronic back pain. Wow. So yeah, when we start looking at that kind of totality of evidence, all showing different comparators and all still following a similar trend line, at least on the acute cases, that's, again, you remember what I said about one natural history being a big part of it, but also when we do see a positive effect, maybe it has a lot less to do with the treatment itself and a lot more to do with the context around the treatment. How much did the person trust the provider? How bought in were they to the proposed treatment um, things like that maybe having more of a determinant on outcomes than the actual intervention
0: so then in general so someone's listening and so they're they're thinking and they're processing this and they're like okay so getting my back adjusted doesn't actually adjust it it's just moving gas around
1: <laughs> you're just and getting pushed on it's like somebody gave you a hug and you got a crack that's it's the same thing
0: yeah literally just getting pushed on there's nothing special about it yep. um and then you explain very well that this trial showed, you know, comparing all these other techniques also shows no like robust significant difference between any of them. So right. then they may be thinking, okay, well then what do I do for my back pain? <sighs>
1: Yeah, that is another question that I get a ton, and I try so hard to give good responses to that, but it's it's really difficult because, and and, and also really positive, I think, and this is something I talk about a lot, especially among students, is the science around pain and different pain interventions is truly so messy. One thing we can glean from it is that there's nothing that works super, super, super well. There's no magic bullet, and I think that's worth saying because a lot of times p- people in pain are searching for that the one magic bullet that's going to solve the problem. And, and that that doesn't exist. And while that sounds bad, on the flip side of that coin, there are also a ton of ways, truly a massive variety of options and things we can do to positively influence people's pain. Because well, the one thing we are learning more and more about, especially over the last 30 years, 40 years, is how multifaceted pain truly is, um, and how many things can influence it, not only just Physical stressors, but also, um, you know, our thoughts and our emotions and, and stress and anxiety and depression and all of these different things, our socioeconomic status, our, our home life, our work life, like all of that stuff can influence pain. And the, the more of an appreciation we have for all of the different things that can contribute to pain, the more we start to realize oh man, there's like the list of things you could do to have a positive effect on your pain is massively long. So the way that I would answer your question as far as like, what should we do? I think if you're seeing a clinician who's supposed to help you with your pain, what they should do is first listen to your full story and get a good understanding of not only like the pain itself and the problem, but how it's affected you. And the reason I say that how it's affected you part is because again, like we need to know all the areas of your life that you, that your pain has reached out and touched because so many different things beyond just physical stress or or tissue damage influence pain. So we need to know how pain is influencing all of those different things. And once we have a sense of that, your provider should be giving you and helping you map out a list of all of the possible contributing factors that they kind of heard in your story as far as what's been going on. And then once you've got that list of all these potential contributing factors, now you have a list of different things that would all will kind of look like life stressors when you list them out on paper that you could do something positive about that might be able to actually positively influence your pain. And the nice thing about that too is that when you take that approach, a lot of those things can be addressed in a self-guided way. And there's a lot you can do for yourself where you don't have to rely on a clinician to do anything other than kind of steer you and offer advice and guidance rather than like treat you or quote unquote fix you because a lot of times there's really not something that needs fixing when we're talking about pain so once you've kind of mapped out contributing factors and negotiated back and forth like what would be most meaningful to intervene upon do we need to start working on just getting you more sleep do you need to address work stress is there something in your in your workouts or physical activity or just meaningful activity that's painful that we need to work on trying to improve you have a lot of directions you can go but that is the the first thing that I always say to people, what should we do is first try and get a sense of what are all the things that are contributing to your pain, because that just opens up more options. It's a tough question to answer, because treating pain is really, really an individual thing. So like, you're not going to get a one broad strokes answer that's going to apply to everybody.
0: I think that you, you explaining how the context of what the patient is feeling actually matters, because if you ask someone like, well, what are your goals? And someone's like, my goal is to be able to pick up my grandson without pain or, you know, kick the soccer ball, or their goal is to run a marathon. You know, it's, there's different, you know, obviously achievable targets of different ones. Exactly.
1: Treatment needs to reflect those goals. That's that's kind of the takeaway there. and if and if the treatment doesn't, like if your goal is to run a marathon and the treatment is cracking your back, I don't see how those things how those things line up.
0: yeah, that makes sense. So guideline wise, what do the guidelines say with regards to musculoskeletal pain, like algorithm?
1: Well, I mean, it depends on what what the issue is that we're talking about. If we want to go with like let's just say back pain, right? That's a big one for sure. And I think you can kind of spill it over to a lot of different other painful body regions. So back pain, first line management, is always education and advice to to stay active.
0: Wow, stay active. See that's great because I think that sometimes people think if they're having pain it's the opposite
1: to rest, bed rest. And there is a time and place for rest, but it's not the way that we used to look at it which I mean long time ago it used to be, you know, back pain would be met with bed rest. And that's that's not how it is now. So so it's it's things like education and advice to stay active or stay at work things like that. And what those two treatments do, and I do look at them as just like interventions, is they kind of mitigate the chances of your problem becoming persistent, because things tend to have a higher likelihood of becoming persistent when, when we over medicalize you and diagnose you with problems that may not actually be your problem, because that wow. causes avoidance of value life activities, and it causes... Heightened sense of fragility and that you can't do certain things, which causes you to avoid work or avoid um, exercise or, you know, fun social stuff. And that can decondition you and it can lower your mood and lower your perception of yourself. And you can kind of see how this all can spiral into a much, much bigger mess. And that's when we start to see, you know, sometimes sensitivity lasting longer than the time it would take a tissue to heal when some of those factors become into play. So that first line treatment of, advice to stay at work, stay active, and then education on just basics about pain and prognosis and recovery and all those things. Those two things are the main first line treatments because those can equip people to handle things on their own if given appropriately. And then also first line for chronic, like that's first line across the board for both acute and chronic. And then You know, beyond that, also would be considered first line for chronic, but not acute. And this distinction is important too is exercise. The reason we don't say exercise is first line treatment for acute is stemming from what I said earlier. Most of those acute situations, they're self resolving. So, like if you have an acute flare up of back pain, I don't need to prescribe you an exercise program to try and exercise that away because odds are it's just going to poke into it and piss it off more. And it's going to resolve itself. My little exercise program isn't going to fix the acute flare-up. So what we should do in those instances, and this fits under the envelope of education and advice to stay active, instead of giving you a new program for an acute pain situation or a new injury, they should help you modify your current exercise or your current activities or your current work situation so that you can keep your life as close to normal as possible while the you know, condition or the issue resolves itself in time. Like if I I rarely accept acute patients because of this time factor and natural history piece. Most of the people I work with are chronic, but because you know, time's usually going to take care of the issue. If I get an acute situation, what am I going to do for them? It usually is just talking them through. Okay, this is going to take care of of itself. So the goal is to keep your life as close to normal as possible while it does that. How can we make that happen? And we just start talking about. All the things that pain could influence that we need to modify just so that your life doesn't get thrown off the rails while the situation resolves itself. I think that's a really important distinction as far as like what we should do in those cases. And then after exercise, exercise is first line for chronic situations um, because usually there's an avoidance element. And one of the things that drives, you know, that being a really negative experience is people missing out on the things that give their life meaning and are important to them. So we can use exercise as a vehicle to get them back into those things. Exercise is also a really powerful vehicle for addressing pain related fears, anxieties, and apprehensions because, you know, people hurt their back and then it's hurt for a long period of time. They can kind of develop this apprehension or fear of just bending it. And I don't know if, you know, you've been a human on earth, but it's pretty hard to live without being able to bend your back. If you're fearful of it, that's going to get in the way a lot. We can use exercise as a vehicle to, you know, kind of strip away some of those fears and apprehensions and get people to trust different body parts again. That's that's a big part of why it's first line. And then everything else under the possible treatments all falls under kind of um, secondary or supportive. So that's where like back cracking and spinal manipulation, it'll be listed as a secondary option or an adjunct meaning you shouldn't be getting it as a standalone treatment. It shouldn't be the only thing you get. It should be in conjunction with the advice, the education, the exercise stuff. And it should be also not meant to be like a prolonged option. So we talked about those long-term care plans. It shouldn't be given to you as something that you're supposed to receive for months on end. It should be a short-term thing that's supposed to catalyze getting you little bits of pain reduction to make you feel safe to move and do things again. So anything else that you can kind of imagine is either going to fall under that second line or not recommended from that point on.
0: Yeah, because I was thinking about it. I was like, you know, there's no orthopedic surgeon that I'm friends with or that I've worked with ever that's referred someone truthfully to a chiropractor for mm-hmm. for spinal manipulation, for treatment, you know, of, a, of any sort of back pain. But it makes sense the way that you describe it and the way the guidelines are is that, you know, putting the context of the fear and the anxiety and everything around pain, and then keeping people active and finding out what their goals are. It just, it makes sense because pain is so multidimensional and Mm -hmm. nuanced and very patient specific. So it's fascinating. So then, then the question next is then, you know, why I got this question a zillion times and I kind of touched on it before, but then why are, why are, children being having spinal manipulations. Like where is that any data or evidence for adjusting a newborn baby? It's mind boggling.
1: Yeah, well, first of all, there's really not any good or strong evidence to indicate that that's ever necessary. If chiropractors do even cite literature on it to try and support it, it's usually citing little one-off case studies which are essentially the uh, people listening the scientific equivalent of, hey, I saw this happen and now I'm writing about it. Like nothing controlled, nothing randomized. It's just somebody's experience pretty much being documented. So, you know, there really isn't any good, strong evidence to support that. And if you think about all the stuff that I just said, as far as, as management for a lot of these cases, it doesn't really make any sense either because what I'm describing, what the guidelines sort of call for is for the clinician to serve in more of a coach or guidance type role rather than fixing things in people because we're not orthopedic surgeons, we're chiropractors and physical therapists. So when you think about it like that, I'm not sure where the role comes in as far as like cracking babies goes. And then I mean, it's just so ridiculous, too, because like, they're little sacks of cartilage at that point, you don't even have bones to be pushing on and they can't communicate to you. That they're you know in pain or that they, that the treatment's working or that they're now feeling better, a lot of it comes down to the parents' perceived experience, which is where this gets really contentious too because then you know a parent who's been dealing with a crying kid sees the kid stop crying and they attribute it to the spinal manipulation or the backracking. You're not going to really probably be able to convince them otherwise because they they're the ones who've been having to deal with the kid and distress over it and now they've found this savior who took that away or so it seems to them, they're gonna, they're gonna die on that hill for sure.
0: Yeah, it's very, I think especially my friends in pediatrics find it quite disturbing.
1: Well you gotta remember the natural history thing. That's the biggest thing with the with the kids stuff, right? Uh, yeah. With, you know, aches and pains and that that natural history piece and being self-limiting spills over to a lot of the things that Kairos claim to treat in babies, which if you look at a lot of the marketing for somebody who's claiming to do that, torticollis, right? Almost always self-limiting. And ear infections, things like that. If you're not treating them with a med- I mean, kids get ear infections and then the ear infections tend most of the time to go away, right? Um, and then it also is just a lot of pathologizing normality too, which is another huge issue. Taking something that really is quite normal and common for young kids and making it out to be a bigger issue than it, than it is. And then they're self-limiting things. So the treatment seems like it's doing something. But like, you know, when they list off, hey, is your kid you know, constipated, is it shitting itself too much? Is it not sleeping? Is it crying a lot? Um, Well, then it should come get treated. And I read that and say, really? Because it sounds like you just described every baby. So does that mean every baby needs to come get treated? And then obviously the treatment is going to look like it worked because a lot of those things tend to last a little bit and then go away.
0: Right. Right. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, no, I, I, this one is one that I get asked about a lot, because uh, a lot of people, you know, are, of course, want to do what's best for their children. And And they're they're
1: stressed and new mothers, especially like just wanting to not do a bad job. And now you've got somebody telling you, oh, he's got all these problems, you better get it treated. It's like, oh, God, okay. It's tough.
0: So it's so manipulative and and so unfair to the parents. And my friends in pediatrics, you know, despise this. Oh,
1: I know. They love when I make videos on it. They're always rah-rah-rah every time I do.
0: Then that kind of actually goes into the other question that I get all the time, which I know as a physician is not the case, but people do certainly get told this by chiropractors generally, is that they can fix things like like sinus infections with (laughs) your your back or your neck, or they can fix your immune system with cracking your back. And even though now we are, when we talk about back cracking, you guys all realize now we are literally talking about just someone pressing on you. It is not doing anything to your spine. It is literally doing nothing. And so where do those claims come from?
1: Um, Well, those claims, when you start looking at back cracking, being a treatment advocated for pretty much everything, honestly, that stems from like the origins of chiropractic, which was a 100 years ago, a guy named D.D. Palmer, I guess, allegedly like cracked some deaf dude's neck, and then the guy could hear or something like that. And the theory then comes from, okay, well, what's in your spinal cord, your nervous system, Uh, What does your nervous system affect and touch and attach to and influence everything? Therefore, doing something to the spinal cord can do something to anything. That truly is like the train of thought. And then if you go a little deeper into like the philosophy side of, of the origins of chiropractic, it comes down to this, what they would call innate intelligence that flows through the nervous system and the spinal cord. And when you start talking about that, it's literally the more you hear about it, the more it starts to sound like a religion, truly. And they'll say, chiropractic adjustments remove interference, quote unquote, very mixed definitions. When you ask these people, what is the interference? What's interfering? You'll hear a lot of different things. But they'll say it's removing interference from the nervous system so that your innate intelligence can flow through the nervous system to your organs and to everything more efficiently. And you can live to your full potential, basically, is what they'll say. Sounds
0: like Scientology.
1: It really does, doesn't it? And that's that, again, it comes back to like, I still don't blame the patients of public. Of course, of
0: course. They they draw the
1: diagrams and everything. Everybody loves saying the line, well, it's all connected. Everything's all connected. Like it, it becomes kind of easy to sell this. And you know, it's just it's just not how it's not how it works. And we know that it's not how it works yet. Somehow, because it's so logical and easy to communicate for people who aren't well versed in health, it, it becomes a myth that that can really stick. But it, it really does range from everything as far as like I've heard cancer and autism and anxiety, depression, like claims to treat just about everything under the sun. Which is like if you're looking for a Cairo and you truly want to see one, like that's usually the first red flag. If they're advocating for treating conditions outside of the umbrella that is musculoskeletal aches and pains and pain stuff, that should be the first red flag. Like you shouldn't, Seeing that
0: that's a really good point because when I think of you and chiropractic and musculoskeletal and everything, I wonder, I'm sure that you're still, you know, you're happy you went through chiropractor school. And but do you where do you see your profession going or what's your hope for chiropractic in general? Like how should a chiropractor be practicing Mm -hmm. and versus a physical therapist and kind of which musculoskeletal expert should be doing what? And I mean, you don't practice the, the back And so we've actually, we, you know, we've discussed at length that the evidence for it is, you know, essentially not that exciting. So anyone listening that wants to either find someone for pain, either PT or chiropractic, like when, what's the future for your specialty and what should patients be looking for?
1: Yeah. So the way, as far as the discerning physical therapist versus chiropractor, Because that's a question I get a lot and people need to know who they need to see. Yeah. As far as if a physical therapist and a chiropractor are following the evidence, using the clinical practice guidelines, have a good understanding of what the research says about our interventions and about management of different conditions. If they're following that rigorously, the two, you shouldn't be able to tell them apart. Wow. They should look the same. And I this is why like when you see me on social media, it seems like it'll seem like i interact with physical therapists a lot more than i interact with chiropractors and that's because that's the case they they definitely are more supportive of me than my own than my own profession i've got a lot of chiros who practice the same way that i do and who support me and i love them to death and like there are there are chiros who i support but we definitely you know get more support from the from physical therapy when we look at things that way but they should look the same and there are physical therapists who who i disagree with strongly and who are not evidence based too so that's that's also an important distinction to make. But if the two are following guidelines, um, they should look just about the same. And then the only thing that I would also say differentiates is as far as like, you know, physical therapists being trained like post-op type rehabilitation. Like if you get your ACL reconstructed, we're not really trained in post-op. So you'll probably be seeing a physical therapist for something like that. That should kind of clear up some confusion there too. And then as far as, you know, future for the profession, what should our role be? I don't know. I don't really try to concern myself with it too much because to me, the problems are so big and deeply ingrained. I don't really see a whole lot of positive change. I don't hold out hope for that. I don't really concern myself with moving the profession forward too much because I think it's I think it's a losing battle to fight. So that's why with like, if you look at my social media, I've taken the approach of, I'm just going to try and do my best to arm the public with good information, not only debunking things, but also sharing guidelines and sharing what I think appropriate management is. And just instead of trying to change the profession, just try to arm the public with the information that they need to decide for themselves because the professions, I mean, change is just so, so complicated and, and so troubling. The ideal role for us that I that I would like, if, if it was possible, which I don't think it is, things like, you know, back pain, for example, are not necessarily medical conditions, the vast, vast, vast majority of the time. So they shouldn't be going to the ER, and they shouldn't be clogging up You know, general practitioners' schedules and things like that. And truly, like as you as you've seen me explain, there's so much misinformation around back pain and useful information that patients need to know that's very counterintuitive. It takes more than the 10 minutes that GPs are allotted, not to their own fault, but just because of how the hospital system is structured. It's you can't give a good explanation for a lot of the stuff that patients need to know. They're kind of hamstrung in that sense. So If we really wanted to help the medical system do a better job of taking on those benign musculoskeletal aches and pains that don't need to see the GP, don't need to see the ER, give them the good education and information that the GP and the ER don't have the free time to give them because it just simply takes too long to explain it. As you again, you've heard me try and do on this hour and really just try to offload the medical system because they should be focusing their time and they have to worry more about Life threatening conditions and things like diabetes and heart disease. And like they don't need to be worried about benign back pain that's going to get better in six weeks. So, if we were really to try and be useful in that sense, that would be the role that I would like us to step into as like a triage for benign back pain. But we get our hands on those cases and then we sign them up for long term care plans and we abuse natural history and take credit for outcomes that aren't coming from our interventions and fill them with misinformation. So, clearly, we are not responsible enough to take on that role. But that's what I wish
0: would happen. Oh man. Well, I mean, that's well said. And I also think that the fact that you're so honest about it is, is refreshing and it's important. And I hope anyone listening who sees a chiropractor or who is even thinking about sending a family member to a chiropractor, you know, has this in their mind and kind of just can go in with an educated background to think of whether or not it's even got utility for them. And what's interesting to me is that I'm not sure if this has always been the case, but I feel like at least I've noticed this more in the last few years that chiropractors have suddenly like flooded the like they claim to be primary care doctors now yeah. and they claim to do medicine now and so where where did that start because there's so much like they're ordering lab tests that are bizarre and making <clears throat> all bizarre functional medicine diagnoses i mean is that part of the curriculum like why it's obviously frustrated the medical community quite a lot
1: yeah and we do have like i mean i got training in a lot of that stuff we we got training we got a crazy amount of training in radiology and, um, you know, blood work. Like I literally, I had to do a certain amount of blood draws on lab partners and then, you know, interpret results from lab tests and things like that. But then unfortunately, like what that skill set turns into after graduation is like very pseudoscientific functional medicine applications of it rather than what maybe those tests are actually intended for. And I, as far as like, I always see on people's Instagram bios who are chiropractors, like chiropractic physician when using titles like that. I just think like we're not physicians. Okay. First and foremost, there's a mix of different levels of regulation and different scopes of practice, state to state to state. And in some cases, like our scope does allow us to operate in a way where you could say like, that looks like the scope of a primary care. Physician, but the reality of the situation is we're just not adequately trained to take on that role to, you know, appropriately triage pathology without making a mess. I just, it's the training is not there and it's not nearly, we don't go through a residency or we're not required to at least. So I don't know. That's part of the problem with chiropractic. It's like the Forrest Gump quote, you know, like a box of chocolates, you never know what you're going to get. Our profession is so, the range of people that you could run into walking into a chiropractic clinic is so vast. Anything from people doing functional medicine to people taking an evidence-based approach that I would support to people cracking babies. Like the reason the public is so confused about it is because it's a deeply confused profession. Like, I mean, even me, like I contribute to the confusion. I treat patients through the computer screen. How is a chiropractor supposed to be able to do that? Like it's just a big big mix. I would so like I said, if I were to just make a recommendation for the public, it would be to stick to ones that don't make claims beyond treating musculoskeletal pain complaints. That's what I would stick to.
0: That's fantastic. And I I also like always remind people that uh, I know that it seems like daunting, but referring to guidelines, some of them are quite Easy to understand. Like, I think our cardiology guidelines, you know, they may be long, but they are written in a way that I think some patients who are interested and motivated to can look and browse through and, and understand. So, if someone wanted to look at some of the musculoskeletal guidelines, where would they go just to see yeah. if, uh, if whatever provider they're seeing is actually kind of sticking with the right information?
1: ChoosingWisely.org. I love a good, choosing wisely. Yeah. And I've made several video. They they should owe me money or something. Cause I've made like two <laughs> videos now that have gotten over a million views. And if I can make a video on TikTok getting over a million views about choosingwisely.org. Yeah, that's I mean,
0: amazing. Come on,
1: that's not easy. So um, yeah, choosing wisely, good patient facing resource for really just um, gives a decent outline as far as telling you what you should expect if the carrier receiving is well supported by the guidelines, um, what you should be getting and then what you should watch out for. They do a nice job of, of laying it out, there's one from uh, the American Physical Therapy Association. There's one from the American Medical Association. There's one from the American Chiropractic Association. They do a good job with that, so that would be where I tell American people. do the American
0: Chiropractic Association guidelines leave out the pseudoscience?
1: The little like list they put on Choosing Wisely, I've re- referenced it several times. I think it's good. Oh, okay. As far as the ACA's actual website, I get pissed off at their articles like every other week, so I wouldn't like go there and say this, that's a great resource for chiropractic information. But um, what they what they did with choosing wisely was good. And then even just for now, just to be quick and and make it easy for people like simple red flags, and things to avoid, I wouldn't want to go I wouldn't want my family members going to a chiropractic office that treats non musculoskeletal problems, non pain complaints, treats infants, and then uh, other red flag would be, you know, those long term care plans that they make you sign up front. Discount x-rays is a big one. Like People will be lured in with a $17 x-ray. But the trick with that is they they do the $17 x-ray and then they point at the x-ray, all the things that they claim are wrong with you and scare the shit out of you. And then they whip out the care plan and say, okay, so for us to fix all that stuff, this is what it costs and you got to sign this and we're only going to fix all those things that we just scared you with um, after you agree to pay for this and go through with the care. Um, so that's obviously predatory and something you want to avoid. And then another big, simple, easy red flag. Anytime a chiropractor or a physical therapist is saying, fix it, fix it, fix it, or fixing all of these things, that to me is a red flag. Because most musculoskeletal aches and pains aren't a result of something being broken that needs fixing or correcting. Usually it's it's sensitivity and we need to adapt to different things, not you know fix or correct or or whatever. Um, those are some really simple ones to look out for.
0: That's super, super helpful. So that leaves all about two chiropractors in the U.S. <laughs> see. I do know a handful who are
1: really good, but they're, <laughs> they're and they're actually pretty big accounts too on on social media. They do quite well setting themselves apart. But yeah, it is it is tough to find. Like I I do have the problem all the time. Like my family members and friends all want to be happy for me that I'm doing work that I love. So they'll reach out to me and be like, I know, I know you're a Cairo. I know you're really into all this stuff. I wanted to let you know, I started seeing one or I'm going to start seeing one. I'm super pumped about it. And I will like pump the brakes on that situation. Be like, okay, well, let's not start. Yeah. Let me, why don't you tell me the name of the place and let me look it up first and background check before I just let you walk yeah. into anything. Cause I just don't trust us as a profession to like take care of people that I care about. I just don't think it's, I, I just can't get there with it. So.
0: Well, I think you've done an amazing job spreading awareness about this on social media. You're incredibly evidence-based and I'm going to have to have you back for another episode to debunk a lot of musculoskeletal myths that are outside of even chiropractor, just musculoskeletal in general, because there's yeah. so many. So um, many, truly no. so
1: many. It's ridiculous. We didn't even scratch the surface, honestly. We didn't scratch
0: the surface. Your social media platform is so educational and so helpful and truly evidence-based. And so tell everyone where they can find you.
1: I think it's kind of the same name on all of them, but if you just type in Aaron Kubal, you'll find it. Instagram, TikTok, Twitter. Sometimes people will make fake Aaron Kubal accounts that pop up every now and then, but it should be pretty easy to tell that those aren't me. So um, yeah, it's it's Aaron aaron underscore kubal sometimes there's a dc on the end sometimes there's not i can't remember which accounts are which but you type that in on twitter tiktok instagram you'll find them and then um, if people want to reach out whether it's for pain problems or students wanting to reach out or clinicians wanting to reach out whatever it's aaron kubal dc at gmail.com is my email address
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Aaron. This was so helpful.
1: Absolutely, Daniel. I appreciate you having me on and letting me ramble, you know, incoherently for an hour. This no, was great.
0: It was very coherent. We're going to have you on again. Thanks again.
1: Wonderful. Appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I would love to keep bringing you all the latest health and wellness information and misinformation to debunk. So please do me a quick favor and leave a five-star rating review and share with a friend. Make sure to leave a comment about which wellness bag you'd like debunked next, and I'll get to the bottom of it. Follow me on Instagram at neilblardomd and our podcast page at Wellness Fact versus Fiction, and be sure to tune in next week.